Bad Bitch Story Pitch, take one. So, the story I'm pitching is called The Painting of Jesua. It starts off in the early 1800s. If you can picture a couple laying in bed, naked, touching, caressing. The lady's name is Lelia, and she looks up at her very attractive new tradesman who is now her uh, patron, let's say. But she's a, she's a courtesan. And he has been taking care of her for some time now. And she says, do you love me? Yes, he replies. More than anything. More than this. And she grabs the only thing he's wearing, which is the lion, golden lion head pendant that hangs around his neck. What makes it unusual is that the mane looks like fire. And there are vines around the muzzle. It's big and kind of ugly, but she's fascinated by it. And he won't give it to her, no matter how many times she asks. He's off and off on trips, but she waits at the apartment that he has leased for the year. It is the first time Lelia feels safe. He says, you know, though we've been laying together all these many months, you never told me how it is that you know all that you know. You read, you write, you speak three different languages. And that's unusual for a woman, but especially one with no noble blood. She replies to him, what makes you think I have no noble blood? Oh, so you're the daughter of a nobleman. She replies, I'm sure the city is filled with bastards of noblemen and kitchen help. I just happen to be one of the lucky ones. Lucky how? The tradesman asked. Lucky because my mother was such a skilled chef. So then when she got pregnant with me, they didn't throw her into the workhouse. That and of course the fact that they threw numerous parties and she was extremely good at fancy pastries, which made them look good in return. But also that my father's wife had a baby just three months after I was born. So I got to be her playmate, her tutoring buddy. And so what she learned, I learned, sometimes faster and a lot quicker because I had to, never knowing when I was going to be thrown out of the room. Oh, so that's what you mean. My blood is noble nevertheless. Yes, that's what I mean. Well, how did you come to this work? Well, that's a long and short story. The short part is, when I was a girl of the age of 13, my mother got trampled by a carriage. She was hurt badly and could no, no, no longer serve the family. So they threw her in a workhouse to die. 
and then extended the invitation for me to take her place. Well, I was like, hell with that. I am his daughter, and I know it. So I told them where they could stick their job offer. I told them that I was entitled to an allowance in land. And what did they say? They said nothing. They threw me out. Threw me and my few belongings out in the road. But lucky me, I had beautiful dresses. Really just hand-me-downs from my half-sister. But a 13-year-old who can read and write, speak three different languages, and as beautiful as I am, of course I wasn't that beautiful then. But, you know, where else would I end up? But in a house of ill repute, they both laughed. Despite all of that, you will marry me like you promised. Of course. Where else will I find a lady who knows so much about, current, about the current politics of the day, can read, can write, and also do extremely good work on her back and other places in the bedroom. She hit him. You're horrible. One of these days, I'll be a proper English wife. Yes, you will. And we will have maybe 10, maybe 12 children. How about maybe three, maybe four children? 12 children? Have you seen what women look like with 12 children? They laughed again. He said, yeah, I'm so sorry, Layla, but I am off on another voyage. But this time, I'm going to make more money than the king. So you say, I'll bring you gifts, multiple gifts and jewelry. Of course, of course. He kissed her. <clears throat> we fast forward into the future. Eight months. He's only been gone for five. He walks in, smiling from ear to ear. She runs up to him. He has his hands full of bags, which she assumes are presents for her. And of course, she's right. He grabs her, they hug, happy to see each other. But this time... He looks at her and lights up, but then he gives her a proper look and his smile quickly drops. What is this? She laughs and smiles. It's the surprise. I told you I would have a surprise for you when you got back. Yes, but a swollen belly, that is not anything I want. Oh my goodness. No one will know. We will marry here, move to a real English city. I'll be a proper English wife. Our child will be born and never the wiser. <clears throat> I know you're the son of a pauper, but you are a rich tradesman now. We will change our story. It's okay. This is wonderful. This is not wonderful. How could you do this? How could you allow yourself to get pregnant with my seed no less? 
How do I even know it's mine? Don't be ridiculous. You know it's yours. You can look at the size of my belly and know when you left, it was already there. <clears throat> he was enraged. How could you? You stupid whore. And he slapped her. The bags fell from his hands. You knew I knew sooner or later I had to end this. But I didn't know it would be today. End this? You said you would marry me. You said you would take care of me. You said that you loved me for the first time in my life. I felt safe and loved. How could, how could you do this? She was confused. She was crying. She was sobbing. She was angry. And so was he. You're crazy. She started to hit and slap at him. He pushed her out of the way and went upstairs to start getting his things. She ran after him, screaming, cursing, crying. As he got down to the bottom of the stairs, he said, here you go. This is more than enough to see someone to take care of that. That bastard need not come into this world. And you, this flat is paid up throughout for the next six months. You're a smart girl. I've bought you plenty of clothes and plenty of jewelry. And besides, you know how to charm someone into taking care of you. All you have to do is get rid of that thing in your belly. But as far as me and you, we're, we're through. She couldn't believe what she was hearing. She screamed and cried as he held a, a large bag in his hand of the clothing and valuables he had in the house. I'm off. No, you're not. She ran up to him this time, screaming, kicking, scratching at his neck, trying to hurt him. He threw her against the ground hard she fell he walked out a few minutes later she woke up she had been unconscious there was blood on her head she opened her her bald hand and there was his medallion the one she knew he loved more than her even when she thought he loved her she touched her belly and said, yeah, he thought he was going to get rid of us. I got him where it hurts. We're going to have to leave soon because he'll be back for this ugly hunk of gold. Skip seven years later. There's a cottage, modest but not poor. There's a child out front playing with a, with a stick decorated. A man walks up. I'm here to see Lilia. Just give her 10 minutes. She'll be right out, the child says. You are the most beautiful little girl I've ever seen, the man says. To the child. The child replies, thank you, but I'm not a little girl. 
I'm a boy. My name is Jesua. Well, I am so sorry, sir, but it is very nice to meet you, Jesua. Jesua says, do you want to talk on the steps until she comes out? The man says, yes, but a little too eagerly. It sends a little warning bell off in a child's head. So he talks to the man, but at a distance, not too close. The man invites the child to sit on his lap. No, thank you, the little boy says. Then Lelia comes out the door. She's smiling. Oh, so happy to see you again, Richard. Do come in. Wait just a minute. The child. Yes, he's mine. He'll be no trouble. He plays by himself for hours. Believe me. He's a good boy. I believe you, the man says. So how much for the boy to join us? The smile drops. Lydia says, you know what? I no longer need your patronage. Please leave now, in the sternest voice she can muster. The man says, oh, I see you're trying to drive a hard bargain. Triple our usual price. Leave now, she says again. Okay, fine. Ten times our usual price, just for the boy. She goes into the house for a second comes back extremely quickly and has retrieved a knife in her hand and chases the man with a knife. As he runs away and escapes being stabbed, crazy whore, she walks back up to her house and her son, who's startled. My sweet baby, she grabs his face and puts it close to hers. You, son, are not for sale for any price. No one will ever be able to buy you. That's why I do what I do. No one, ever. Do you hear me? This is not the first, second, third, or even fourth time this has happened. From now on, Jesua, you can only play at the back of the house. And when I have people come, don't even talk to them. Don't make eye contact with them. And if they come anywhere near you, well, that's why I give you large sticks to play with. You whop them with it. Do you hear me, son? Joshua nodded. I love you more than anything. He said, I love you too, mommy. And he hugged her as long as his little seven-year-old, as long and as hard as his seven-year-old arms could. He could see his mama was hurt. He saw the tears in her eyes. He didn't know what he had really done wrong, but she was definitely hurting, and he didn't want her to feel that again. More time passed. Jesuit's mother, Lelia, was talking to her friend, Patricia. Patricia, Jesuit is 13 now, and I really thought that it would get easier as he got older. You know, he would be, he's already a rough and tumble child. So I thought he would get scars, you know, get bumps, get uglier. But it seems with every year, 
he's more beautiful. What do I do? People come here and make offers for my child. I swear to you, the more he's around, the less clients I have. Because if you try to buy my child, I'm going to try to cut your hand off. Well, Patricia said, I see you have a problem. Do you make enough money to send him to school? I know a decent school that's not that expensive. It's mostly the children of the bastards of noblemen, but it's a good school. He can make good connections there. Yes, a school. That's the ticket, because I never want my son to have to do any of the things or go through any of the things that I've gone through. Jesua arrives at school. The school is large, the biggest building he's ever seen. But it is mostly gray brick, gray and red brick. It looks dull and unimaginative. The only thing of beauty in the whole school was its gardens. It even had a garden maze. Jesua, on first sight, knew that that's where he would spend any and all of his free time. Jesua really wasn't a people person. He liked to keep to himself. He had learned the hard way from all of his mother's company that talking to people, even making eye contact with people, made them act weird and sometimes caused his mother to try to kill them. So he was accustomed to trying to keep as quiet and make himself as small as he possibly could as to not be noticed. Fortunately and unfortunately for Jesua, he was the most beautiful person at the school. Jealousy was automatic. Lots of boys tried to hit on him. And then when he didn't give way to whatever what they, it was that they were approaching him about, they would try to beat him and sometimes even rape him. Jesua had been taught from a very young age how to fight well. His mother made sure of it because she was also sure of the fact that people would try to take what they wanted from him. He knew for a fact that that had happened to his mother multiple times. And it was her sole mission on earth that nothing like that happened to him. <clears throat> he often found himself punished as a result of a fight. It wasn't long before he found one friend. It was a boy named Eric. Eric was the type of child you didn't notice. He blended easily into a crowd. He looked like everyone and no one simultaneously. He was plain as wallpaper, but he was funny and smart. And he was the first real friend Jesua had ever had. But... He and Eric were still the target of multiple groups of boys at the school. He wrote his mother constantly, but tried not to worry her, so only told her the good things and the highlights that had happened. He spoke of having a friend, Eric, and how they were making plans. Even though Eric 
was a bastard. He was the only son of a very wealthy nobleman. The man had tried and tried to have a son with his wife, and he had eight daughters. His only son was a bastard, but nevertheless, going to be a quite wealthy banker. It wasn't long before Eric started making plans and told Jesua that they could work together at the bank his father owned. Of course, Jesua wrote his mother about this, and it made her more than happy. It was her life's goal that her son would have a respectable job and be okay. But he did find himself in a predicament. The headmaster, who he could tell was a repressed, gay, sadistic man, often liked the boys to fight and would sometimes taunt them. Jesuit found himself wanting to use the skill set he had learned from his mother. His mother did not mean to teach him to have a silver tongue, to no seduction, but that's all he had ever been around. And the experience is the best teacher. So Jesuit went about the task of protecting himself and his friend. So he would, he asked the headmaster to mentor him. The headmaster agreed because he was already smitten by the boy's incredibly handsome looks. So they spent hours, he spent hours listening to the headmaster rattle on about the proper way to do this and the proper way to do that and what being a gentleman meant and stories of his childhood. Sometimes Judge would have to bite his own tongue to keep awake, but he always nodded, looked interested and repeated back phrases that the man said just as he was taught to do by his mother, by watching his mother. But then he would often also get himself out of sticky situations. Like the man offering to tutor him late at night. No, Sir Smith, I would never. People might think something and you are so noble and so good. I would never want to besmirch your character by staying here later than I should. In fact, even the thought of this makes me want to do penance. I will punish myself by not allowing myself to see you for a week. No, Jesuit, you don't have to do that. No, I must. All you've given me, all of your wisdom. So he would find breaks from the headmaster in the punishments he gave himself. But in his seduction of the headmaster, he got protection. Anyone who hurt him, jumped him, stole from him, will be severely punished. He was safe. Jesuit spent three and a half years at the school. He was almost 17 and finished all of his studies. He was a month from going home and extremely excited he and Eric would be in the maze for hours, making plans of their future. Eric already had property, two cottages, and even tenants. 
he and Eric would live together, work at the bank, be best of friends. And Joshua thought of himself when they had families, their families would be together. In fact, he wouldn't marry a girl who did not get along with Eric. And he was sure the truth, the same was true for Eric. He imagined them being friends forever, growing old together, their families growing old together. Maybe their children were married. The thought made Jesuit smile. There were only two people in the world who had loved him, truly him, for him, and that was his mother and Eric. Eric said, I need to talk to you about something very important. I have something very special to tell you. Jesua was excited. He knew Eric was a little sad about him leaving, but he was only going home for a few months. And then he and Eric would meet up and sail to the Americas together because his father was starting a new bank there. They would run it. It was exciting, more exciting than anything he could ever even have imagined for himself. Joshua walked into the maze, smiling from ear to ear, both dimples showing, practically walking on air. Eric, why do we have to meet here in the maze? It's cold. He rubs his hands together. Eric said, you know, I've been wanting to tell you something for a long time, but I just, I just didn't know how. Know how to tell me something. We talk every day. For hours. There's nothing you don't know about me. There's nothing I don't know about you. But fine, what is it that you want to tell me? Don't worry. I'm just visiting my mother. I miss her. She misses me. And besides, I don't know when I'll be back. But you know, as soon as we have enough money, I will send for her. Because I plan to take care of her. Yeah, yeah, Eric said. I'm 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 not I'm not talking about that. Then what? Jesua says. Eric looks at Jesua. I love you, Jesua. Well yeah, I know. I love you too, Eric. You're my best mate. Eric takes a deep breath and then he grabs Jesua's face and kisses him. Jesua pulls back confused, hurt, and a little angry. What? Why? Why, Jesua says. I I want to be with you, but I like girls. You know that. You know me. I, I know. I know, Jesua, but I'm in love with you. But, Eric, you know me. You remember you told me once, once that there was there was a boy who lived near and you looked at him and you, you might have been attracted to him. I remember you said that, that you think you were attracted to a boy. And I'm a boy and I'm your closest friend and you love me. Why can't we just be together? Jesuit was hurt. So you want to be with me. Touch me. Yes, yes, Eric said. Jesuit was fighting back tears. But you know how I feel about people who want me. He was like, no, Jesuit, it's different. I love you. But you know what I like. You know what I want. 
You know the stories I've told you. You know what happened with my mother. Joshua looked at his friend, closed his eyes, and opened them again, as if to clear the deck. Okay, Eric, you want to be with me? How badly? Anything, Joshua, anything. Suppose I told you I would be with you for the next 30 days, and we could do everything you wanted, but afterwards, we would never be friends again. Well, that's not what I want. Well, that I are, we can be friends forever, but you never touch me again. Eric looked at the ground. He looked at the sky. Okay, I'll take the 30 days. Tears ran down Jesuit's face. No, there'll be no 30 days. There'll be no forever friendship. You are now nothing to me. When I look at you, I see through you. We will exchange pleasantries, but that is all. Eric said, you can't do this. I love you. You gave me a, 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 a option, and I said, I just want to be with you just one night, Jeshua. Just one night. You would trade our entire friendship for 30 days of carnal lust. You are not my friend. You are like, Everyone else, you want to possess me. You don't love me. You don't know what love is. Eric fell to his knees, sobbing. Please, Joshua, please don't do this. Joshua starts to walk away. Eric jumps up, jumps to his feet, starts to run after Joshua. He grabs his shoulders. Joshua pushes it up, pushes his hand off of his shoulder. I said, don't touch me. I will hurt you. Eric says, Joshua, don't do this. I, 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 uh, what about our deal? I, I'm going to let you live with me. I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to have money, lots and lots of money. I'll give you lots and lots of money. You don't even have to work. He stopped again. He turned. He said, so that's what you see when you look at me. A whore. You're beautiful, Eric says, and I love you. A beautiful whore. Joshua says, no, no, Joshua, I love you. No, you don't. So you thought you could buy me. Joshua continues to walk. Eric screams after him, I know your secrets. Your mother's a whore. You don't want anybody to know. I, I can destroy you, Joshua. Joshua turns around and looks at Eric. You have already destroyed me, Eric. So if you want to go tell people things about me, go right ahead. Be my guest. You have already destroyed me. Jezra walks to his room and sobs. Eric is his roommate and he does not know how he's going to get through the next 30 days. He feels as if his heart has been yanked out of his chest. His future... He lost his future and his best friend within a matter of minutes in a maze that he loved, in a garden that he loved. Everything that he loved just turned to dust around him. He has to go home and tell his mother he doesn't have a future after all. He has no friend to confide in and no one to comfort him. 
he is once again alone in the world. <laughs> the person who has to bear his secrets and pain by himself. Joshua finally gets back home. He can't wait to see his mother. He bursts in the door and there she is. Only she looks like she's aged 10 years. His mother, who he thought was the most beautiful woman in the world, but who definitely was one of the most beautiful people in their city, now looked aged and worn. But her face lit up at the sight of her son. They hugged. Her friend Paula came over soon after. Paula, my son is here from school. You know he's going to take me away to the Americas once he gets rich and take care of me. Paula laughed. If only I had had the sense to have a son. Jesuit <sighs> looked at the floor. He sighed. No, mother, I won't be taking you to the Americas. I'm going to get a job right here in a bank or at a constable's office or even at the local morgue or cemetery. I'm going to work hard and take care of you here. Oh, Jesua. No, you're going to leave here. You are not going to be known as the son of a whore. <clears throat> you made friends, a best friend. I just, I read your letters and they, they kept me going. Joshua, I've been sick, but your letters gave me life. To know that you're going to be safe and taken care of is all I've ever wanted since you were born. You are everything. You are all of my dreams come true. Joshua didn't have the heart to tell his mother the rest. He just smiled and said, of course, mother. Jesua went about looking for a job in town. He told his mother some story about how he wanted to spend more time with her and that it would take his friends some time to get set up and he would send for him. None of this was true, but Jesua was determined to get a job making enough money to take care of him and his mother. He had been educated. Before he was educated, he had been educated by his mother. Jesuit now spoke five languages, could paint, do complicated math and sciences. He could draw maps. He knew the law. There were so many talents and skills he had. He was sure that he could get work. He went from place to place trying to get work. Each time being identified as the son of Lelia. He was beautiful. She was beautiful. He had several offers, but none of them were for real jobs. All of them were to be someone's whore or kept basically as someone's whore. He was desperate. A part of him wanted to just drag glass across his face. People had told him how lucky he was to be so beautiful. He felt his beauty was a curse. 
Had he been plainer, more ordinary looking, he could have just gone in with another name. And no one would have been the wiser. But no, he was Jesua, the beautiful son of the beautiful whore. He was known, even though he had been away for almost three and a half years. His chest filled with anger and pain. What was he to do? His mother had very few, she had very few coins saved because most of her money went to paying for his schooling. He knew this already. The fact that his mother was sick made him sick. He had to find work. She shouldn't have to work. He couldn't lose his mother. She was all he had. She was his entire world. As she would tell him, he was hers. Jesua looked hard month after month and could not find honest work. He found some work slaughtering animals but that was only briefly because even the butcher had designs on him. The amount of men that were gay in his town were unbelievable, but the amount of women who approached him was also unbelievable. He had stories to tell and that made him even more unhirable. His mother got sicker as the months went on, and then she died. Jesua lay next to her. A part of him wanted to die with her. Her friend came over to help him prepare her for burial. You know, Jesua, you were everything to her. Yes, I know, and she was everything to me. A part of me wants to just lay next to her and die. And that would kill her again. And she would come back to life, bring you back to life, and kill you. He tried to laugh. But all he could do was weep. Take the time you need to mourn. And boy, leave this place. You're beautiful. You're intelligent. You're educated. I know your mother left you something. She had. Right before she died, she put a pendant around his neck, an ugly golden lion head, but she told him never take it off and never sell it. She had given him the little money she had left and said, go to your friend Eric and be wealthy. He didn't have the heart to tell her he didn't have a friend Eric. He had nobody, only her. He buried his mother and then went out looking for work again. He had his suits from school and he took the money he had left and went and bought a new one, a fancier one. There was a part of town that he hadn't gone to look for work. It was the wealthy people who didn't work and didn't have businesses. It was the wealthy women. They knew very little of him. So he traveled to the town over where the wealthy women were in his new suit and started on what he felt was a short journey to make money 
the same way his mother did. He gave himself a pep talk. Though he had never been with a man or a woman, he knew everything about seduction. He knew everything about talking, listening, engaging. He knew how to touch. He knew how to kiss. He had just never completed any full acts. He had had his share of petting, groping, rubbing, but could never complete. Why? Because visions in his head of his mother and her job being raped and almost raped, his mother, and then himself being almost raped. Time after time after time, he had issues, but he kept thinking if he found someone that truly loved him, it wouldn't be an issue. He knew intimacy wouldn't be an issue, but they had to choose him. So he went out to seduce someone. He strode through the park looking for someone lonely and hurting. This is a story I wrote a long time ago based on a true story of things that actually happened. So, the story begins with a 14-year-old who was super smart, super cute, super charming. It was around the time everybody was wearing guest jumpers and the boys would wear like one side down with like a white turtleneck under it and Reeboks were really popular and Jabot jeans anyway so this 14 year old kid he's super smart really cute he had just won a contest the year before for um doing an essay on why drugs were bad kind of like the say no to drugs campaign anyway he was really persuasive, and he was also 14, a 14-year-old boy. So he's curious and totally hormonal and starts really getting into the ear of a girl he liked who was 13. So things progressed a little further than they should have for a 13 or 14-year-old. And the 13-year-old girl winds up pregnant. Unfortunately, her parents are devout Jehovah Witnesses, and they uh, kick her out. The 14-year-old boy is really plagued with guilt and stress. His name is Ty. So I'll start from there. The girl gets put in a group home. Her name is Linda. So Linda calls Ty. Ty, this place they put me is really bad. This man, he he keeps touching me and hugging me. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm scared of what's going to happen. Ty is like, it's going to be all right. Um, I'm talking to my mama now. And I'm telling her that she, she has to come let you stay with her. You talked to her already? Well, I'm trying to talk to her. But, you know, my mom, she's kind of... She's crazy. And, you know, she worked two jobs. She always tired. 
You gotta talk to her, Ty, because I don't know what I'm gonna do. So Ty goes to try to talk to his mom. His mom is not really trying to hear it because she has him and his two younger brothers. She's working two jobs and can barely afford to take care of them. What the hell do you mean you got somebody pregnant? You 14 years old. Have you lost your damn mind? Oh, and so now I'm supposed to take care of this girl and this baby. Well, Ma, Ty says, I don't want to be like that. I mean, he left us. And look at you. I'm not trying to do that. I'm I'm not like him. Apparently, you are. You just like him. Making babies with no intention on taking care of them. No, I intend on taking care. How the hell are you going to take care of her? You don't take care of yourself. You don't buy your own clothes. You don't feed your own self. But you're going to take care of her and a baby? Where are her parents? They kicked her out. Oh, this girl must be troubled in her. No, my, they kicked her out because she's pregnant. I, I don't even know what to say. How could y'all, y'all so young? How, wh- what? She's 13, you 14? What the hell? What, what the, I don't even, I thought I raised you better. His mom doesn't know what to do. She just breaks down crying. She doesn't know whether to whip him or cry or what. So she just cries. Ty, in the meantime, is talking back and forth to the girl. She's calling him on a payphone. Linda calls. You talk to your mom? Yeah. What did she say? She's trying to figure things out. Please hurry, this man. Things are bad over here, Ty. They treat us like crap. And, um... This man is too touchy. I really, I really need to leave here. I'm working on it. Ty tells her. So Ty goes to his mom again. And he said, look, Ma, I know you was mad at first, but she has to come here. Because I convinced her to do that. And now she's pregnant and it's really my fault. If she can't stay here, then I can't stay here. Oh, so what you're saying is that if I don't feed your little girlfriend and your baby, then I can't feed you? So I should, what, get a third job so I can take care of your girlfriend and your baby? And I can barely take care of you and your two brothers. How exactly am I supposed to do that, Ty? I don't, I don't have... I can't grow an extra me. I don't know what you want me to do, son. I cannot do it. Tired because of his experience with his father and his father not being there for them and him really hating his dad for not being there for them. Runs away. He decides that uh, he's going to take his $200 and prize money from the essay that he had been saving and the little money he had saved from doing odd and end jobs for him. People in the neighborhood that he had enough money somehow to take care of them. So he went around talking to people. He went to 
his pastor and asked his pastor could he get a job working at the church. Pastor said, son, you're only 14. I can't hire you to do nothing. And he said, well, look, the situation is like this. I really need to find some place for me to live because I got somebody pregnant. I got to take care of them. They said, oh, son, there are agencies. There are places for young girls like that. And he said, yeah, she's in one of those places. And it's, it's getting bad. So he goes to the corner stores. Some of them offer him 5 or $10 to sweep up, but they can't offer him a job because he's too young. He goes from place to place just trying to get a job. Meanwhile, he's really considering going back home because he realizes that he can't do this after only one weekend. So he does go back home, and the girl calls him again from the payphone, and she just basically says, in tears, time on my way to you. She gets there and tells him that she's been raped and that she can't go back to the foster care place. The mom tells him that him and the girl can't stay there. So he takes what's left of his money and he goes and gets a motel. Then he goes around again, talking to people. He goes to another church and asks another pastor for a job. No one offers him a job except for one person, the local dope man. He said, you want a job? I got you. This goes against all of Ty's principles, but you got to do what you got to do, right? From that point on, Ty is able to take care of himself and his family. Years pass, and Ty is always in a moral struggle between who he really is, what his real values are, who he wants to be, and what he has to do to survive. This is the tale of the Madison Twins. Lori and Lainey Madison. <coughs> they were born to extremely wealthy parents. Lori and Lainey were identical twins. Perfect in almost every way. Lori was the happy-go-lucky one. She was always smiling, singing, and twirling. Lainey seemed to be born with a chip over her shoulder. She was moody. She was never smiling. She seemed to want to hit things. She held grudges. She thoroughly believed in revenge from a very young age. <coughs> when Lori and Lainey were only five years old, They were both the delight of society, especially their father's good friend, who was the head priest 
in a very large church. He was extremely popular. Lori loved him and would run up to him and hug him. His name was Father Tim. Laney was suspicious of him. One day, Father Tim offered to take Lori on a day trip with him. Well, the girls discussed it the night before. And instead of Lori going, unbeknownst to their parents, Laney went in her place. Laney smiled and twirled and pretended to be her sister. By the time they came home from the trip, Father Tim was missing a hand. Laney had set a booby trap while they were on a hike. <clears throat> he looked for her high and low. By the time he found her, he tripped over a rope that she had brought in her handy-dandy book sack and got his hand crushed by a large rock. What no one could figure out is how did she lift the rock? From that point on, they were on very different trajectories. Lori, still the sweet, loving, brilliant little girl, her sister Lainey would see a series of psychiatrists and psychologists who would all say that she was <clears throat> bipolar, maybe schizophrenic, and just different diagnosis. It depended on the month and the week. Both the girls were considered geniuses. By the time Lori and Laney were 13, Laney had been committed to a hospital. It was a private institution, but it was the kind of place that her parents thought she would benefit from. Too many people in their circle had been injured. In reality, it had only been three. And all three of them had deserved what had happened to them. Lori was off to a very private posh school. The parents realized what Lori was doing when she begged to go to this school. She wanted to be near her sister. Even though her sister was institutionalized, at least three miles away from the school, the school was close enough <clears throat> where she could still feel like she was close to her sister. She begged and begged. The parents finally allowed her to go, only because the school was one of those places where prime ministers, children, famous actors, bankers, and people with, of high in the finance markets children went. It was one of 10 schools on the list that they wanted to send the twins to. Unfortunately, only one daughter would go. By this time, they would pretend that they only had one daughter. They would lie and say the other had died <clears throat> because they were embarrassed to have a daughter with extreme mental illness. The doctor said she might never get better. This, the parents took under consideration. Lori, from the day she stepped on the campus, was the delight of everyone. She was sweet and charming, and she always gave people the benefit of the doubt. <clears throat> However, they had a group of boys on the campus. 
there were boys who in another school in another setting maybe not with rich powerful parents could have been decent people they weren't very popular a lot of a couple of them were intelligent but they were very very privileged and believed that if a girl smiled at them that meant that she liked them and should automatically go out on a date the head of this group was a guy named Terry. <clears throat> Terry had noticed Lori as soon as she hit the campus, but she was a freshman and he was a junior. <laughs> Juniors normally didn't date freshmen, but he called himself making an exception in her case. Every morning when she saw him, she would smile and say good morning in a, her usual Lori way. What Terry hadn't noticed, one would guess, is that she did this with everyone. He was no exception. She would say good morning and smile sweetly to everyone she made eye contact with. It's just who she was. So after months of planning, <clears throat> him getting a new uniform, cleaning behind his ears, getting body spray, a haircut, and even working out a little for the last three months, he finally had the courage to go up to Lori. During lunch, she was passing, and she said, good afternoon, and he stopped her and grabbed her hand. She said, what? And smiled. <clears throat> he said, well, you know, I just want to tell you, even though I'm a junior and you're only a freshman, and you know, juniors don't normally date freshmen. She said, yeah, I know. Kind of creepy, huh? And he was like, <clears throat> yes, but I'm making an exception in your case. Um, I know that you kind of like me, and I just want to let you know I kind of like you too. And why don't we go out? Lori smiled sweetly and said, I like everybody, but I'm not dating yet. I'm only in ninth grade, and I really want to concentrate on my studies and making friends. <clears throat> she snatched her hand away and continued to walk on. From that point on, <clears throat> Terry was angry and upset. He was embarrassed because all of his friends were looking and watching. They giggled when she snatched her hand away and, and walked away. Now he was set on revenge. She was a slut. She was a cunt. She was every word that was negative that he could possibly think of. She had been flirting with him <clears throat> since she stepped foot on the campus. It had been a half a year. Every day, all smiles and sweetness and good mornings and good evenings. He knew what that meant. And now she was going to reject him. She was going to play with his feelings. Who did she think she was? So he set a plan in motion to get revenge. Lori, blissfully unaware of anything, was going about her usual, making friends and studying. She was also taking secret walks in the middle of the night to meet her sister, who had learned how to break out of the institution. She wrote her sister every day and left notes under rocks. They were both extremely good runners <clears throat> and could make 
and were extremely fast in every track division they had ever tried out for. They would see each other at least three times a week and give notes every day. Lori wrote her sister everything she always had. They talked over every single detail of each other's lives, especially anything that was different. And now everything was completely different. Before the end of the year, he started doing things, leaving notes, scratching the word slut in her locker, putting pornography on her computer with her head attached. Everything he could think to do to hurt her, he did. She was being bullied and tormented. However, Terry was the son of the most famous lawyer, of one of the most famous lawyers in the country. The school felt almost helpless to do anything about it. The summer was coming, and she was going to be almost grateful to go home, except for the fact that she would be away from her sister. Next year would be a better year, a new year. Over the summer, she would definitely make sure she got tougher. And come her sophomore year and his senior year, because she knew who was doing it, things were going to change. The next year began, she had determined over the summer that she would not allow what he had done during her freshman year to change how she behaved. She would still be happy and sweet and friendly and loving. She started off the year with a meeting with him, his friends, and a sympathetic teacher saying that she knew he had done a lot of the pranks and mean things that had happened to her last year. And he would say, you have no way to prove that. She said, I don't, but can we please start off this new year with a clean slate? And this year, understand, I don't know what happened last year to make you think that I had tried to hurt you or lead you on. I was just being friendly. I'm a friendly person. She explained herself thoroughly and completely. He nodded his head along with his friends and and acted as if he understood. One of his friends, Delmond, did. He heard everything she said loud and clear and immediately felt very guilty for participating in some of the things that had tortured her the year before. (laughs) He was the only one who said he was sorry. The others looked at him angrily because saying he was sorry was admitting that he had participated. Delmont didn't care. It was wrong. She was a sweet girl and she had done nothing wrong. So after they left the meeting, Terry, his friends, decided to meet, have their own meeting. The first thing he said is, this year we're going to get her even better. Delmont said, no, this is wrong. So then they told Delmont he could leave and pushed him out of the meeting.
they decided that they were going to hurt her even worse. Last year, they had posted fake pictures and in pornography with her head attached, but anyone who looked at it for half a minute could tell it wasn't her. This year, during the summer, he had broken to the school and got cameras put into the girls' locker rooms. He was going to take actual pictures and video of her nude and showering if he could to put to blast everywhere. I want to make her feel as small and insignificant as she made me feel. I want to get that whore back, Terry said. Delmont wasn't even in the room to try to talk reason to him. Delmont had been the voice of reason that kept some of their outrageous pranks in the freshman year from being worse than they were. Delmont went to her. He went to Lori and said, look, I admire what you did when you brought us in the room and you made me realize some things, but they haven't realized anything and they're still going to do things. In fact, they're planning right now to do something. I don't know what, but they're planning something. And if I were you, I would just transfer out of the school. Lori told Delmont, thank you and smiled at him. She said, I can handle myself. And besides, I have a lot of friends. And she did. She was beloved. However, she couldn't prepare herself for, she couldn't have known what Terry and his other friends were planning. Not only was Terry angry because she spurned him, he was jealous. He was jealous because he was a senior and didn't have as fraction of as many friends as she had. She was liked, beloved. Everyone always had nice things to say about her. She was talented. She could run faster than him. She was stronger than him. She was more talented in art and mathematics and science. Math and science had been areas which Terry and his friends had dominated until Lori came to the school. She was the best at almost everything. And he thoroughly hated her for it. The day came when they got to turn their cameras on and the girls were back to their locker rooms. It took a while before, it took weeks before he could get a clear shot of her because of all the different girls going in and out of the shower, but he finally got it. A clear shot of Lori taking a shower. He watched her. He watched the video over and over. They were waiting for him to post it up. And when he said, no, I'm not going to post it. We're going to have pretend to have a truce. I have a better idea. I don't want to just hurt her. I want to kill her. But before I kill her, we'll all have her. Then they all began to obsess over the video of her taking a shower. They obsessed over every inch of her body, planning things, horrible things to do to her. Lori, however, was not to be taken easily. She was also a black belt in karate. She was strong. She was smart. She had good hearing and good sight. One-on-one, Terry would have gotten stomped. But he felt confident with his group of friends that he could more than handle Lori. They planned and planned meticulously. The night came 
when they decided to kidnap her out of her room. She had a room of her own now that she was a sophomore. Her parents were wealthy. She was also known to take long walks late at night. She had gotten in trouble for it several times. She would just say that she was practicing running or walking to loosen up her muscles for a cramp or something. Mostly it was just a slap on the wrist because everybody knew she ran track. People had told her over and over again that it was dangerous to run at night. Lori didn't care. She did what she wanted to do. But what the boys didn't know is that she wasn't just running to run. She was running to meet someone. Her sister, Lena. One night, when she was stretching to go for her run, the boys crept up behind her. One on each side, they grabbed her. They tased her first. The first tase did almost nothing. It didn't take her down like in the videos. She got angry. She hit and broke Ralph's nose as he tried to grab her by her wrist. She fought and scratched and kicked. She kicked and broke Robert's ribs, two of his ribs on his left side. She was super strong, super fast, and agile. Finally, with repeated tasing and hitting, they got her to the ground. They brought her back to her their clubhouse. where they tied her up and proceeded to rape her and then hit her and beat her. She was cool as a cucumber, trying to talk them, talk to them the whole time, telling them this was not the thing they wanted to do, to please let her go the whole time. She was unraveling the rope around her, her wrist. Her wrist became bloody, But when Robert, who already had broken ribs, was trying to mount her again, she saw her opportunity. She had been beaten and had broken ribs of her own by this time. Her face was busted and she could barely see. She flung him. One of her feet was already almost loose. She got the other one loose. They were coming. One jumped on her. She grabbed him by the eyeball and scratched it. She kicked and punched her way to freedom. She was running to the school, to the police, to anybody when she felt an arrow hit her straight through. There was an arrow that had gone through her side. She believed her liver. She believed she was dying. She kept running. It was the day before the end of term, the night before the end of term. She was going to be a junior next year, and he was going to have graduated. But unfortunately for him, he had been focused the entire year on revenge. His grades had fallen, and he was going to have to repeat 
the first half of the year. He didn't care. They knew they would get away with it. Her family might not even realize she was missing for a few days. Everybody would be home. The end of the term came and nothing. He knew he had hit her with the arrow. The other boys were scared. He said, she's collapsed somewhere. She's dead. Trust me. And as far as the arrows go, everybody has access to them. Sure, it'll be an investigation, but we're all each other's alibis. We all have an alibi, and it's called each other. We're okay, guys. We're okay. He, they kept trying to convince themselves. At the beginning of the year, he was angry, even though he knew she was dead. There had been no reports on the news, nothing in the newspaper. The whole year, he and the other boys had been looking for it. There were some whispers that she was missing, but then those went away. He had to be at school for a whole half a term because of that bitch. That's what he mumbled under his breath. The other boys had been juniors. They were now seniors. People were gathered for assembly. They said something, still nothing about her being missing or dead. They were spooked out. And then, down the hall, here she came. Good morning. Good morning. She looked directly at Terry. Good morning. And smiled. One of the boys dropped his book back. The other one turned white. She just smiled and walked up the hall. Good morning. Terry reviewed it in his head over and over again. It had been a kill shot. He knew it. They had broken her nose. He had cut her in her pretty face more than once. Where were the scars? She looked as perfect as the day she came. Her good mornings, her laughter, her laughter rang in the hall. It was deafening to them <laughs> as she talked to her friends. What the hell is going on? Pitch for television show. The name of the show is called Posh. It's about a therapist who specializes in victims of child trafficking and sexual assault. She's a therapist and runs a rehabilitation center that helps victims of child trafficking and sex abuse establish new lives with apartments and therapy, new clothing, surgeries if they need it. However, how her charity is financed is through donations. Posh, who herself was a victim of child sex trafficking, the women that now help her and assist her were girls she was trapped with. They get evidence of child porn, child pornography, assault, blackmail rich and powerful men. 
into making large donations to the charity and then set them up for other crimes using poorer men who they've also gathered evidence on. They call it little fish eat big fish. They use the poor men also to set each other up. Whether it is the actual crime they did and get that evidence to the police or whether it is a bigger crime in which they feel the person will get more time than if they just molested their four-year-old daughter. That's the show. That's the idea. That's the pitch. Investigate, find, assess, blackmail, set up.